You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. It's a great pleasure to me to come to Washington, even if for only a visit. <laughs> One time last year, I expected to come for a longer stay. I was under the impression, which was shared by a great many others, that I had a clear call to duty. But last November, it turned out to be some other kind of a noise. <laughs> Let's go over the legend of 1948. Truman won his re-election in a surprise. Check. Truman rode on a train. Check. Truman was the underdog. Maybe. Truman won because he was folksy and gave him hell. Maybe. Truman won because Congress did nothing. Not exactly. It was the final week of the 1948 presidential campaign, and Harry Truman climbed onto the stage of Madison Square Garden to a full crowd in his opponent's home state. Thomas E. Dewey was governor here. Now, he wasn't going to get a welcome from the governor, but thousands of people flowed through the open doors of what was a great place for a prize fight. Happy Days Are Here Again played. Truman took note of a trend he had been in Cleveland, and then Thomas Dewey was in Cleveland. He had been to Boston, and then Thomas Dewey had gone to Boston. He was in Los Angeles, and Thomas Dewey had been to Los Angeles after him. And he tells the crowd, For the last two or three weeks, I've had a queer feeling that I'm being followed, that someone is following me. I felt it so strongly that I went into consultation with the White House physician, and I told him that I kept having this feeling that everywhere I go, there's someone following behind me. The White House physician told me not to worry. He won't follow you into the White House. This is the kind of talk that we know from Harry Truman's campaign of 1948. He spoke at many rallies like this, but most of the speeches he would give that year would be from the back of his train car, the Ferdinand Magellan, often to small crowds of people at all times during the day and night. The germ of the idea for that big whistle-stop tour that would occur comes from a trip that he takes in June out west, and he and his staff make a decision, keep things spontaneous and not to write all the speeches down and, and say the same thing to every group of people, to try to figure out what their issues are and to say something. And it's very successful. Not only that, 
Truman learns the art of the counterattack. Robert Taft, a conservative Republican from Ohio and still a contender for his party's nomination in June of 48, makes an attack that this is a political trip paid for by taxpayers. He's gallivanting at every whistle stop in the West. The DNC decides to telegram the local officials at each stop that the president makes and says, with this telegram, please wire the DNC whether, stop, you agree with Senator Taft's description, stop, of your town as a, quote, whistle stop, quote, end quote. <laughs> Furious towns responded. Poncatello, Idaho is not a whistle stop, the town's mayor said. Eugene, Oregon said, Taft must have been in the wrong city. Laramie, Wyoming's Chamber of Commerce president said, Taft is confused, like always. Gary, Indiana said, Gary's 135,000 citizens resent that slur. And finally, Los Angeles, where the president had also spoken, responds by telegram, Whistle stop. The term hardly applies. At this moment, I have in my heart a prayer. As I have assumed my heavy duty... Still, it's true that most Americans did not have a positive impression of President Truman, and most polls show that he would lose to the Republicans in the fall. To judge thy people that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge this by so great people. In July, he had to sit down his own advisors and Democratic Party officials and give them a pep talk. The situation isn't as bad as the newspapers make it look. We are going to win, Truman tells them. We are going to be on the road. It's hard for us, but we'll have to do it. I expect to travel all over the country and speak to at every whistle stop. He liked the term now. It wasn't easy to run a White House, and then also to go on the road. And aides were exhausted. And the president himself, he doesn't get much speech on this whistletop tour, on the whistles tours, um, one of two, one of three that he will engage in. He gets on his first train trip September 17th, and it runs for 15 days. His last trip will be on Election Day. And when so you see him in that famous photo holding up the Chicago Tribune that says, Dewey defeats Truman, when that's obviously not the case, it's from the train. That's where he is. His train is the Ferdinand Magellan, a specially equipped and armored car. It had two dining cars plus lounge and sleeping cars. As the windows were sealed, the train car was air-conditioned by blowing the interior air over pipes carrying the meltwater from ice. Other features included a bank vault-style door at the rear entrance to the car. Two escape hatches located in the lounge and the presidential bathroom for emergency egress. Exterior loudspeakers for public addresses. A telephone in every room that could be connected to a train-side telephone outlet provided by the local telephone company. It is the first passenger rail car built for a president since the War Department developed one for Lincoln. And it was developed for FDR during World War II. But Truman's now putting it to use politically. But it is interesting to think about that Ferdinand Magellan, because sometimes when you hear like, hey, Truman took it to his opponent doing a train trip. Well, first of all, you have to realize, of course, this is the preferred mode of travel during this time still. 
And yes, Truman did use airplanes at different points during the 1948 campaign. He also used cars. But it's actually not like a rickety old campaign that you might expect from an underdog. But actually, it's pretty high tech for its time. That train would travel more than 28,000 miles across America, and he would give 350 speeches from the rear platform. 1948's that story of the underdog who came back. He was making train trips while his opponent was... In selecting to serve our nation, the finest men and women in the country, free to unite our party and our country in meeting the grave challenge of our time. Well... Dewey was also on a train. Thomas E. Dewey, he, was, he had the Dewey Victory special. Dewey would also speak from the back of the train. Of how Americans who honestly differ close ranks and move forward for the nation's well-being shoulder to shoulder. There were some noticeable differences, though. Truman would give spontaneous talks adjusted for the place that he was in. Dewey would make generally the same speech. January 20, there will be teamwork in the government of the United States. At every stop. But one of the reasons that Truman is able to give such speeches is some because of his personality. If he felt like a regular guy, it's because he was. He was also a farmer. He would tell crowds, I can remember very well, I ran a farm for the best 10 years of my life in Jackson County, Missouri. It does my heart good to see the green fields of this nation once more. They are a wonderful sight. The record-breaking harvests you have been getting in recent years have been a blessing. It had 600 acres on it, and I went there when I was 22 years old and left it when I was 33 to go to war. He's not attacking Dewey. He doesn't mention Dewey by name. He mentions the 80th Congress, and there's a reason for that we'll get into. And while I'm on that subject, I know that the war talk, which is so prevalent today, is causing all of you deep concern. It is plain enough that we are facing a very disturbing international situation. I should like every American to realize that this country is making every possible effort to preserve the peace. We'll speak in the north of California in Fresno where... 5,000 people are going to come to hear him. He's going to end up doing very well in that county in the 48 election. And then visit Tulare, Bakersfield, Mojave, and Burbank. The final stop that day is Los Angeles. Truman goes and speaks at Gilmore Stadium to 13,000 people. And joining him on the train that day would be Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall, and yes, future president Ronald Reagan. James Roosevelt, son of the former president, now living in Southern California, said that he was astonished by the crowds that the president was getting. This from William Bray, a Truman aide who was on the campaign trail. After the train left the station, Truman would find out how much time we had before arriving at the next stop. If the gap time was an hour, the president might say, give me 20 minutes. He would lie down and sleep for 20 minutes. The president had the capacity to go to sleep almost immediately. 20 minutes, I would rap on his door. He would say, okay, and then come back to the dining part of his private car. Once he was ready, he would usher in the people who had boarded his train at the last stop. Having interviewed them, we all knew which ones only wanted to shake hands and which ones had some special message for the president. We put the people who were shaking hands first, 
and the ones with a special message for the president last, so he had the chance to converse with these people during the few minutes remaining while the train was in the station before it went for another town. In Phoenix, we drew a larger crowd than Mr. Dewey, who had been there before us. In Texas, we met with former Vice President John Nance Garner. In Oklahoma City, the president was hurried into a car and drove as, as fast as possible to a ballpark. Indiana was successful. The same was true of Kentucky. We traveled through West Virginia late at night, but nonetheless, there were crowds at several places along the route. The president ordered the train to slow down so he could wave to this people. That's right. One thing about the, the Ferdinand Magellan, it was going at speeds of like 105 miles per hour, and that would be pretty rare for somebody to be traveling at that time. Truman at one point tell, tells the engineer to you know, slow it down to 80. Dewey's train was different. On the Dewey train, he said, the newspapermen played bridge and drank martinis. On the Truman train, they played poker and drank scotch and bourbon. But something else was different. Dewey wouldn't make any speeches before 10 a.m. Truman would talk at any time to any little crowd that might be assembled as long as he was awake. He would make speeches at 4 in the morning. In fact, the first hint that an aide to Dewey gets that something is wrong is that in Albany, New York, in the governor's hometown, his capital, there's a huge crowd at 4 in the morning. We're slipping a little, Dewey notices and says to this aide, John Burden. Important people... And especially those candidates for office would jump on to Truman's campaign. In Ohio, they rode with James A. Cox, who had been the 1920 Democratic candidate, and also with the governor of the state, Lausch. In Minnesota, the train picks up Senate candidate and future Vice President Hubert Humphrey. And in Texas, a tired, disheveled candidate for Senate, Lyndon Johnson, still unsure if he won, jumps on the train. We talked to A.J. Bame earlier in the year. He's the author of a very good book on this topic. You might want to read it before the election, right? Dewey Defeats Truman, the 1948 Election and the Battle for America's Soul, A.J. Bame. An aide, Donald Dawson, said that he remembered a dusty Texas town where 200 were assembled. They still may have been from all over the area. A cowboy on a horse right out of a western was at the event, and he was sort of being a little disruptive or at least trying to take some attention with his, his, his horse. Truman jumps out from the train, holds the horse by the head, and looks at its teeth. Your horse is eight years old, he said, and not a good horse. <laughs> the crowd laughs, and the cowboy leaves. Truman could do things like that. Who else could <laughs> look at a horse and tell its age? And he could mingle. He could talk about his farm and being the best years of his life. And as one newspaper reporter said it, you know, what, what Truman was talking about, though, in some of the campaign speeches was fire and brimstone. Really, like kind of what today we'd call class warfare politics. Um, as one reporter describes it, what Truman could get away with was Robespierre, spoken in the tone of the Independence Missouri Kiwanis Club. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. 
Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers, and have a safe tomorrow. Meanwhile, Thomas Dewey, he looked like, as they would say, the guy on the top of the wedding cake. The mustache, that's a quote from Alice Longworth Roosevelt, Teddy Roosevelt's daughter. But he looked like the mustache man. He'd talk a lot about unity, and we need unity in the country, American spirit. He'd have a way of talking that was kind of over the issues. He wouldn't answer Truman with what Truman said. He didn't defend the Republican Congress. And he'd begin his campaign late. And Truman makes a pretty easy story of the kind of front runner compared to the underdog. And it certainly is. That's how history will remember the 1948 election. It's an election that, wow, what are we now? We're not, we're not quite 75 years, but we're getting there. And it still influences elections because the media will never cover another election. I mean, I did an episode on um, Truman right before the 2016 election, and even though the media can definitely favor one candidate, say things are going to be blots. This happened in 1984, for instance, 1972. You're always going to hear them refer to this story, and it's kind of this double check. It's like, well. But there was what happened to Truman in 1948. And I think there's many ways and it doesn't really fit. One is that polling had stopped in October. So that what you may have had is that there was this long-running surge towards President Truman that just was never captured because media was just using each other's copy about how Dewey was in the lead. Roper, Roper and Gallup polls that were done before October. There's also a lot of politics. Both the Republican and Democratic parties are split. There are two other candidates, Henry Wallace running as a progressive and Strom Thurmond running at the Dixiecrat anti-civil rights that are going to take votes in different ways and influence the election. But there's also splits in both parties. Point being is that if you don't look at 1948 in the context of the 1944 election, and why would most people, right? Who cares about the 1940 election other than Truman got picked as VP and became president later, right? It's FDR's last victory, one of four. Doesn't seem like a significant election, but it is in this way. Dewey is also the candidate running against FDR in the 1944 election, and he is very young. He's young in 48, but he's really young then. He's just 42. He's running against Roosevelt. He decides on a very aggressive campaign in 1944 that he's going to say the war is being run by tired old men. He's referencing Roosevelt. He's referencing the cabinet, bureaucrats, But it gets hurled back at him that he's attacking the generals and admirals for being old men, and he has to backtrack. He also attacks that FDR knew about Pearl Harbor before George Marshall gets after him and and tells him to please stop the attack. You're, You're letting the Japanese know what secrets we have. He also, at one point, accuses FDR of distortions of truth that not even Goebbels would have attempted. And it is shocking. And it's widely viewed as a mistake. One of the points that A.J. Bain makes in his book is that even in 1948, 
people are still bringing that comment up. I guess that's not unlike something that would happen today, right? But it's still, it's like his uh, Mark Rubio water glass, right? It's like, oh, that's the guy that said that horrible, atrocious thing. He's still recovering from that. He's also looking at the polls. He's also got advisors that are telling him, don't make mistakes. If you don't make mistakes, you'll get to election day and wins. He's also looking at his own history. He lost that 1944 election. He lost another New York governor's election in 1938 because he went on the attack. And he says, this doesn't work for me. I'm going to keep it positive. I'm going to keep it as if I'm president and run that way. And so I think it's important to contextualize what Dewey is doing in this election and also to just keep in mind that history is not inevitable. It was not inevitable that Truman would win. Some of the states that Truman wins by are very low margins. For instance, he wins Ohio by a smaller margin than FDR lost the state with. It's the same is true, absolutely, of California. All of this is just to let you know that, uh, you know, it's easy in hindsight to, to think about what a good strategy is, but Truman's scrappiness is much regarded in history. But at the time, there were many people for which it came off as not befitting a president. He stopped trying to be president now, Joseph Alsop wrote, and a big magazine writer that was riding along on the Dewey campaign train, like most of the national journalists. He's running as would a sheriff candidate in the Ozarks. There's something else to discuss. The split between the Republican Party by the new liberals, of which Dewey is certainly one. Dewey is going to be for slum clearance. Now, what does that mean? You're, you're, you're fixing up the cities. You're removing slums and building new projects. Now, that's not going to turn out very well, but this is something that he's for as governor of New York. Education, he's for. Social security, he's for. And then there's the old guard, conservative, not for these things, against the Me Tooism. Don't just follow the New Deal and do it lighter, but be different. Dewey has to be careful here. If he says too much in one direction or the other, he's going to alienate his united party. So he speaks about unity a lot. Truman exploits this. And sometimes what we see is just kind of like folksiness. It is in history because it makes a better story. Is also just excellent precision politics on Truman's part. He knows there's this split. So in his convention speech, he calls Congress and he says, you know, in Missouri, we have a thing called turnip day. So I just heard in your convention that you said you were for education and that you were for enhancing social security and all of these things. You could get it done in five days. So I'm going to call Congress to session. That session begins before these train trips start on July 26, 1948, and it dictates a lot of what happens. Arthur Vanderberg, Republican senator, calls it the last hysterical gasp of an expiring administration. U.S. Senator Stiles Bridges calls Truman a petulant Ajax from the Ozarks. Was there really a pressing of national emergency, Times says? So this move by Truman is ridiculed, but it does have an effect because that is as decisive as the train trips, but I'm not sure that political observers at the time realized it. But some newspapers get this. The Washington Star says calling the Congress into special session is a political maneuver, plain and simple. 
but it will put the Republicans in an uncomfortable spot. Baltimore Sun says, likely, a special session is likely to prove a source of acute embarrassment to Mr. Dewey. Here's what the New York Herald Tribune said. He tossed away any public esteem and prestige of his present office by attempting a shoddy partisan trick on his opponents. For it is with no national or international emergency that Mr. Truman is summoning the Congress. No national emergency, but a democratic emergency. And it is true. Congress hasn't been summoned to a special session since Franklin Pierce's time in the 1850s. A Dewey campaign does try to blunt this by saying, the Republican platform calls for the enactment of a program by a Republican Congress under the leadership of a Republican president. Obviously, this cannot be done at a rump session, called at a political convention for political purposes in the heat of a campaign. So I also think that this special session of Congress is important to focus on because... Truman's campaign was more than just being folksy, or that that was the style of it. It was more than just style. He also took action. He took a bold action as president that exposed his opponents. He was also taking a chance, and that's important to notice, that if that special Congress had passed some bills, maybe he gets credit, as Taft thought, or maybe the Republicans get credit, and they show that they can govern in a way that he couldn't and this was something that was envisioned by one of his aides. It could be Samuel Rosenman, who is the White House counsel, although that's just where the file of the memo comes from. This memo says, The strategy would keep a steady glare of publicity on the Neanderthal men of the Republican Party, the reactionary men such as Martin, Halleck, Walcott, Allen, who will embarrass Dewey and Warren. It would split the Republican Party on the major questions. Of course, it might be hazardous politically. The Congress might pass some good legislation for which Dewey and Warren would seize credit. Or they could enact civil rights legislation, which would take the issue away from Truman. And because Democratic senators in the South would stall it and filibuster it, the Republicans would look good without having to pass anything. But the memo says, the memo written to Truman, says that Congress is so closely controlled by the reactionaries and lobbyists that it cannot pass satisfactory bills. The Congress would be in fear of losing their financial backers and incurring the wrath of the National Association of Manufacturers, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce and other such groups. Now, one thing that uh, Governor Harold Stanson of Minnesota advises Dewey to do is when this Congress is called to take control of it, don't straddle. Dewey does send a representative to a meeting that occurs of members of Congress when they're deciding what to do before this special session of Congress. And Herbert Brownell Jr. is his representative. He says, look, there's two musts. If you're having this special session, pass the $65 million loan to build the UN building in New York. Show that you can get something done. It's like having it. It's a good way to have an international issue without the controversy. And second, you wanted civil rights legislation, not an overall civil rights bill, but a special amendment to the Displaced Persons Act, which would strike out passages that were discriminatory to Catholics, 
and Jewish people. Robert Taft, now he gets put down as one of the old guards, Stan Patton, he was in that camp, but he did have legislation he wanted to use this for, and one is that there's still a need for housing. This is post-World War II. There's a need for housing, so he wants bills for slum clearance and housing pricing. There's a, a bill that he wants, the Taft-Ellender-Wagner housing bill, uh, which contains funds for slum clearance, provide direct funding for veterans who still don't have housing, for low-rent housing units to be built. But he also wants credit controls. This is going to be very important to his business constituency and fighting inflation. This is because there was inflation after World War II, and Congress wanted to rein in the ability of consumers to spend too much. It's causing inflation. It's interesting because this is, again, going to come up in 1980 when there's also inflation, but right now this is a concern. Now, we wouldn't think of it these days to do limits on consumer credit. That would be a no-no. I would suspect a no-no for both parties right now. It's negotiated. The Speaker Joseph Martin doesn't want to do anything, really, but can get talked into maybe one bill but not two, and they decide uh, to just go with the consumer credit legislation. Taft goes along with this. He's now trapped later when he's going to have to end up fighting against his own bill. Basically, all they agree to do is um, the UN building and some credit control legislation. Truman appears before Congress in a special session. You know, they have to let him speak or that would be a huge coup. There are some calls for the Republicans just to convene and then adjourn really quick. That would meet the constitutional obligation, but... The Republicans decide wisely not to do this. Truman emphasizes price controls and housing support. Truman's people do something else. His press secretary, Charles Ross, releases to the press a report card for this special session. So you don't just have Truman speaking to them. You don't just have Truman calling them into session, turn up day kind of thing. You don't just have him speaking before them. But also pre-released is this special session report card so the public can view what they, what the legislation is requested by the president and where its standing is. And these are all bill of presidential recommendations, anti-inflation program, housing bill, federal aid to education, increased minimum wage, social security, reform of federal pay scale, civil rights program, correction of displaced persons act, United Nations loan, that's for the building, international weed agreement, Restoration of funds for power projects. And then he has a series of steps. Passed by Senate, yes or no. Favorably reported by House Committee, yes or no. Hearings held by this or previous Congress, yes or no. And the Congress had held hearings on all of them. Some of them had passed the Senate and hearings were held. And it even cleared the House Committees. But the report card showed were not yet passed by the House. Same was true of that United Nations loan. Several items like increasing Social Security had not passed by the Senate, nor had the International Weed Agreement. This is what Truman says to Congress. Our people demand legislative action by their government to do two things. First, to check inflation and the rising costs of living. And second, to help in meeting the acute housing shortage. It would be reckless folly if we failed to act against inflation. High prices are not taking time off for the election. And he recommends the passage of a bill that Republicans have recorded, that have, have wanted to pass, that uh, Robert Taft wanted to pass, the Taft-Ellender-Wagner bill. This is the bill we need. We need it now, not a year from now. 
Republicans get the sense that they've been outplayed a bit on this special session, but there's little they can do. They also still think that their presidential candidate is basically going to win the Truman so unpopular. So they do attack just the idea of doing this special Congress. One congressman gets up, Frederick Smith of Ohio, and says, Mr. Speaker, there's no good reason for this special session of Congress. I am therefore introducing a resolution to adjourn. Republican leader Charles Halleck calls the president's proposal an insult to the intelligence of the American people, and Senator Taft criticized Truman's call for a special session as a political maneuver in the campaign. They also do something which is very common. They find a quote from Truman's running mate, Senator Elvin Barkley, who says, if we sit here between conventions or after the two conventions, the entire time of Congress will be taken up with political bickering and political legislation and political oratory. See? Truman's running mate doesn't even want this. Why did that happen? Well, the reason they couldn't coordinate is because Truman made the decision to call a special session without consulting Barkley, who was not only his running mate, but also a Senate minority leader. And one of the things, the way the story gets told, is that Congress did absolutely nothing. And that's not really true. But they did choose wisely and pick things that were more strategic. One of the things in the Senate they do is put forward an anti-poll tax legislation. This is civil rights legislation because they very well know it's going to get filibustered. And that's exactly what happens. In fact, the Senate is now shut down for five days during this special session while there's a filibuster from Senator John Stennis of Mississippi and others who get up and talk. Yeah, so one of the things they try to do is embarrass the Democrats by creating this filibuster situation. But want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. It appears that there was coordination, even though Southern Democrats and President Truman don't always see eye to eye. There was some enough coordination, uh, coordination that there is a filibuster in the Senate, but they make sure not to get too angry in their speeches during the filibuster. This isn't going to be uh, where they bring out some of the hot rhetoric that they normally would when they're opposing civil rights bills. They know what's going on. They're going to do that favor and not cause trouble. Then they actually subject some of what President Truman has suggested to a special test because this is an emergency session. Is it emergency legislation? Does it need to be worked on right now? Is it of national importance? Of course, Truman was saying yes to those three things. So the Congress gets, they started interviewing members of the Treasury, of the, of the Truman administration. They get the Treasury Secretary, John Snyder, before them. First, he refuses to testify before Congress. Then Truman makes him because it's going to look pretty bad if he doesn't. But then when he does, he says that price controls should be a last resort. That's 
Truman's own Treasury Secretary. So he is a problem there. So this, in the actual proceedings of the session of Congress, it actually, this turn-up day Congress goes a little worse for Truman than it might seem. But something bad happens to the Republicans now. And this is just fact, you know, Congress is open for business. There's going to be business. So you have certain Republicans um, in the Senate. One of them is Ralph Flanders of Vermont, who wants to push forth Taft's housing bill. The problem is Taft has agreed with the other Republicans. They're going to kind of lay low during this session and just pass a few popcorn bills, nothing big. This is a trap for Taft because... Now he has to oppose his own bill, and that gives Truman a talking point, which he's going to use until November. But it gets out of committee. And then Joseph McCarthy of Wisconsin, yeah, we know him for anti-communism, right? Well, he was also a senator, and he's he introduces an amendment designed to stimulate private construction of low-cost apartments. McCarthy's amendment changes the uh, Robert Taft and others bill from slum clearance and public construction with funds for low rent projects um, to just a mere increasing government loans and mortgage guarantees. Housing Act passes 48 to 36, the Senate 351 to 9 on the House. They pass a consumer credit control requiring buyers to put at least one-third down payment, and requiring an 18-month limit on payments. They wouldn't want that these days, right? Now, another thing that doesn't get a lot of attention, and it could have gone very wrong for Truman, it did hurt him a little, is that since he's opened up Congress, they continue everything, including their investigations. And that includes the House on american Committee. And it is during this special session of 1948, August 3rd, where they interview former editor of Time magazine, Whitaker Chambers, and they start talking about communism in federal government, including um, State Department technician Alger Hiss. So it, it's not true that Congress didn't do anything during this session. They pass a mild housing bill, mild anti-inflation bill, just a consumer credit limitation. Uh, they do give the United Nations their building. And they pass a small veterans bill. It gives uh, $5 million to help purchase automobiles for disabled veterans. And Truman says in a statement, It now appears that the 80th Congress is determined to take no effective action on the proposals which I have submitted to curb high prices and to protect the average American citizen against the certain prospect of increased living costs. They release another report card to the press which shows that they have taken no action. They do say on bank credit controls and acted in part. And in terms of housing, which is the one piece of legislation they passed, they say emasculated housing bill enacted instead. And so Truman said the stage was set. If there's no special session of Congress, gives Truman a lot less to say on that train voyage. So everyone focuses on the train trip, and it's important. He's going to go at every stop. Clark Clifford, who is one of his aides, is going to have a big future in Washington, says that they just have this routine. He gets out at the stop. There's a group of people there. They have a few things to say about the locality because they've been sent information from a New York advertising firm that is doing research for them. He knows every uh, information he has ready about every city that he's going to be in. He says something local. But his speech, even if it is spontaneous, is usually the same. There's an attack on the 80th Congress for doing nothing. 
on Dewey's train, he's got all of the major magazine writers. Every time he arrives at a city, there will be an announcement. All interested in seeing Governor Dewey, please come to the rear of the train. And they would get the same rehearsed speech about unity in America. One time reporter found it so boring. Nothing could relieve his boredom on that trip. Still, most papers had Dewey up, as did most polls. The New York Times, October 4th, out of 20 states they looked at, 14 were leaning Dewey, and that was including the big electoral gems of California, Illinois, and Pennsylvania. But Truman was bringing crowds in, big crowds that would show up. Dewey could not fill stadiums that Truman was filling. He gets half the people in Boston that Truman does. Truman's getting more people in Boston than FDR did. He keeps attacking Republicans, never mentioning Dewey. Now, Dewey is getting letters in Albany. This is something A.J. Bain talks about in his Dewey Defeats Truman books. Here is um, Helen Brigham of California writes to Dewey. I am worried. Truman, with his barnstorming, name-calling, and harping on one story about the 80th Congress, seems to have a free hand. Why doesn't Mr. Dewey and Mr. Warren reply to him? Another letter writer says to Dewey, for heaven's sakes, fight. But then something happens. Dewey is on his train in, in Boku, Illinois, on the platform, and it appears He's got a little crowd in front of him, and he walks out to his microphone, the rear platform of the train, and you know they make the announcement, all interested in seeing Governor Dewey, please come to the rear of the train. And Dewey shows up. He's got his microphone there. There's a crowd in front of the train, and then the train keeps lurching forward. Dewey grabs onto the railing. Crowd gasps. Turns out the brakes weren't locked. And it comes pretty close to hitting the crowd. Fortunately, it doesn't. But Dewey's in front of a microphone and says, that's the first lunatic I had for an engineer. And then he goes on. He's flustered from what just happened, as anyone might be. He ought to be shot at sunrise. Then he catches himself. Wait, he's supposed to be the guy on the top of the wedding cake here. But I guess we can let him off. Nobody was hurt. And he goes back to his plastic speech about unity. Well, it's understandable, but it's also a mistake for Dewey. Dewey, in the process, by accident, just called a train engineer a lunatic. The media gets a hold of it. And they talk to the train engineer. Turns out, he was voting for Truman anyway. He says, I wasn't going to vote for him anyway. And furthermore, I think about as much of him now. Truman doesn't miss a beat. He talks about all the wonderful train crews in America, hardworking people. He says in another speech, it's not just a fight between the two parties. It's a battle for the soul of government. They're using the same tactics as Hitler did, he says, for stupefying the German people. And he says this evil, he uses the words evil force, must be defeated. This is a severe test of the not responding to your opponent's strategy. Dewey hears this on the radio. He's angered. He tells his aides that he'd like to take the high road speech and tear it to pieces. His aides say, no, stick to the plan. Dewey's wife says, don't change the speech. Don't take the bait. That's what they want you to do. Truman's not even in the contest. You're ahead of him. You're going to bring him in by talking about him. Control the message. These are things we hear commonly today. His wife at one point says to Dewey, 
If I have to stay up all night to watch, I will see that you won't tear up that speech. Well, Dewey doesn't tear it up, but he is the candidate and he is the one speaking. So he has this prerogative. When he goes to Chicago for a speech that's also going to be NBC National Radio, he says, thank you for this glorious welcome. We will bring something better to the country than the confusion, weakness, and bitterness that we have now in Washington. It has failed tragically to win the peace. And then he says, And millions of people have been delivered to Soviet slavery, while our own administration has tried appeasement one day, bluster the next. He uses the term weakness, he uses the term incompetence. Dewey is hitting back. Crowd loves it. He gets more applause for this speech than he gets for anything. The next day, Dewey goes to Cleveland and attacks Truman for ripping the country apart for his own political gain, arousing fear and prejudice with his speeches. I pledge to you that on next January 20, there will begin in Washington the biggest unraveling, unsnarling, untangling operation in our nation's history. Then he goes to New York to Madison Square Garden, and Dewey is punching his palm with his fist at the desperate tactics used by the president during the campaign. I am very happy we can look back at the weeks of campaigning and say, this has been good for our country. We can look back at our victory, he's already calling it a victory, and say, America won. He goes off to tell reporters off the record about what he's going to do as president and who he might appoint to cabinet. Well, America may have won, but as we know, Dewey did not. And he'd lose pretty big, especially in the electoral college, 303 electoral votes for Truman, less than 200 for Dewey. I'm just as surprised as you were, he tells an assemblage reporters at the Roosevelt Hotel the next day. Dewey didn't know the reason. States like Iowa and Wisconsin that he had planned to win just went contrary to everybody's opinion. He at one point blames 3 million Republican voters who didn't show up because they felt that we were going to win. But it's three months later when he has a new target. He blames the old guard of the Republican Party at a February 1949 Lincoln Day dinner. He says, the Republican Party is split wide open with a reactionary group attempting to return its philosophy to the 1920s. The old guard responds and says, no, it's people like Dewey that were too liberal, too much Me Tooism." And you see a split in the Republican Party that really is its entire 20th century existence. Time Magazine interviews a Clarence Keller, a more conservative Republican operative from Arizona, who says, Dewey's campaign was smug, arrogant, stupid. It was contemptible to our enemies and our friends alike. No issue was stated or faced. Dewey's friend, Hugh Scott, is replaced as RNC chairman and an old guard GOP is put in its in his place. Dewey won't run again. Dewey is not talked about a lot. Eisenhower obviously becomes the key Republican during the 50s, a spot that, that Dewey would have been had he won this election. The next time you're going to hear of Dewey is he speaks out against the GOP nominee Barry Goldwater in 1964. I think 1948 is a lovely story. It's a really important for political humility. That's why I, I did an 
episode on 1948 right before the 2016 election, and I'm doing one now. And at that time, I was explaining how complex Truman's victory is that simple statements like, oh, he just won the farmers. That was another explanation that Dewey had, like we lost the farm vote. And there are certain states where that's the case, like California's kind of one of them, like he he doesn't win Los Angeles and San Francisco by huge margins, neither city by more than 10,000. But he wins like the areas around Fresno and Contra Costa County. No, Sacramento gets bigger margins there than he does in any of the cities. Illinois and Missouri, Truman wins with uh, the votes of Chicago and Kansas City, respectively. So the farm explanation, you know, might work for Wisconsin and Iowa. And certainly there was some legislation that the 80th Congress had enacted that made it harder to store grain. And then there's a grain glut and prices go down and that hurts farmers. And Truman, of course, takes on that issue. That works in a couple states, but there's also a city vote for Truman. There's a labor vote for Truman. Um, He's winning both the votes of African-Americans in many states, but at the same time, retaining more moderate southern states like Texas or Florida. Right, he's going to lose the deep states because Strom Thurmond running a three-way campaign. I think Dewey counted on Henry Wiles pulling more from Truman than he ended up doing. Really only pulls from Truman in New York. And there's all of these factors that are, are important that make it a complex election and a very modern election in a very modern time. Here's another worthwhile point of making about the 1948 election. If it was because Truman did a better job of picking issues that were relevant to the American people. Well, he's going to have a really tough next four years trying to pass any of that because it doesn't end up being extremely popular to pass with Congress, his so-called fair deal that he tries to institute, most of it not passed. Doesn't pay a political price for that. The Republicans win in 1952. Democrats get 54%, well, really 55% of the vote in the 1940 election, down to 53 in the 1944 election, down to 49, or let's say roughly down to 50% in the 1948 election, and down to 44 in the 1952 election. So one way of looking at 1948 is part of a continuum where Democrats are losing their percentage of the vote that they were getting during the New Deal years. And it's just simply that Truman occurs at a time where it's not enough for him to lose the election. It's also an incidence of, you also have situations where Democratic candidates are getting more votes from Truman. So all of these things combined it makes a great story. And I think it's not one that you want to get rid of because it keeps people aware, particularly media coverage that you have to watch. You know, any election is an election and anything can happen. And that's important. But um, it's possible that there's too much focus on Truman, the underdog, and not enough focus on Dewey, a liberal to moderate politician running with a party that's completely split underneath. I want to thank you for listening. Remember about the Patreon site. Thanks for listening. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs> 